Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. Good to see all of you. Hey, if you have your Bible, uh, turn with me to the book of Micah, Old Testament book of Micah. If you have your phone or you have a... uh, any other device, feel free to look it up on there. Book of Micah. How many of you love the book of Micah? Liars. You've never read it, right? Because neither have I. Just kidding. I read it once. But uh, we're going to be continuing our study through the Minor Prophets tonight, and the book we land upon is Micah. So, let us pray, and then we'll get into it tonight. Let's pray. All right. Lord, we thank you for uh, a time where we can worship you and praise you, and and Lord, we thank you, God, that um, everyone in this room tonight is precious to you, Lord, that you love Lord, and, and you see them and you care about them. And we're so thankful for that, Lord. And um, we pray, God, as we go through your word tonight, that you'd speak to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that um, you would make application to our life. Lord, we, wanna, um, we want our hearts to be in a place where we can hear from you. And, and, uh, and so, Lord, whatever preconceived idea, um, whatever things we brought in today, we pray, Lord, that your spirit would work through all those things. And um, again, Lord, by your grace, would you minister to us in, in, um, in our soul. Lord, we're thankful for your word. We pray, God, that you would anoint it tonight. And, um, and Lord, that you'd work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Right, uh, like I said, we're, in the, we're, we're going through a series of just teaching through the minor prophets. Um, the minor prophets are 12 books that are smaller in nature, some are a little longer, some are small, Obadiah's one chapter, Jonah's four chapters. Um, they're not major prophets, I guess you could say, although they are powerful, it's not like a, like a power thing, they're not like, oh, we're little. Um, like Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, um, but these are um, books that are written for, they're hyper-Israel books. They were prophesied uh, of future events as well as present things that were going on in the nation of Israel. And so um, there's, there's very much a historical background to each one that we want to make sure that we put it within context. And we want to understand what, what this book is about. We want to know why it's in the Bible. Um, so what we're doing is we're going through each book, the whole book, the whole letter every week. We're highlighting major themes uh, we're highlighting major applications. We are not reading every verse. So if you're like, this is going to be a long night. We're not reading every verse. We're just going to be summarizing and highlighting uh, the major points of the book and hopefully getting a full feel of what this, uh, what this prophet is saying tonight. So like we have in the past, uh, we have two sentences that kind of sum up what these books are about. Micah is the caring prophet. The caring prophet also could be characterized as the naked prophet, but thought caring just kind of went better. Um, it says in verse 8, therefore I will wail and howl, I will go stripped and naked. So um, there you go. Micah is about Israel 
and God's uniqueness and his righteousness. And the purpose of the book is to convict Israel of their sin. It shows us that God hates sin, but delights in pardon or delights in mercy. This book is written sometime between 750 to 700 BC. And Micah prophesied during the reign of King Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. As you'll see there in verse 1, it says, The word of the Lord came to Micah, the Moresheth, in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. So um, Micah prophesied for a total of about 35 years to the northern kingdom of Israel as well as the southern kingdom of Israel. Remember, Israel is split into two sections, the northern kingdoms and the southern kingdoms. There's Judah and there's Israel. Okay, And so most of the prophecies that we've been reading have been going towards the northern kingdom. Remember, their kings were extremely wicked and evil. They turned their hearts of the people away from the Lord. They worshipped idols, things like that. But... Um, Micah actually spends a lot of time in both. And he prophesied during the time of Isaiah. They were contemporaries. Some have said that Micah is the cliff notes to Isaiah. How many of you love cliff notes and passed high school with them? Amen. Hallelujah. Yes. So that's what that is. <laughs> Micah is the cheats to Isaiah. Cheat codes. Remember Sega Genesis? Anyone play Sega Genesis? Oh, man. Okay, thank you. Say it a little louder so I don't feel like an idiot. Thanks, Brad. Okay. <laughs> Cheat codes. A-B-B-A-A-C-A-B-B. -A -A -B -B, right? Those are allowed in my... Anyway. But in the time which he ministered to the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern, but the majority of his prophecy is going to be in Samaria. He prophesied of their judgment as well as he lived through to see their judgment. So he prophesied what was to come and then lived through it and saw it fulfilled, which would have been a difficult task as the Assyrian Empire comes and lays waste to the land of Israel and leads them off uh, into captivity, many of them. The book lays out like this in chapters 1 through 2. Uh, it's hearing your judgment. He's going to be talking about the corruption of the people, um, starting at the, the very base level. In chapters 3 through 5, he's saying, uh, hear your answer to those judgments. He's going to be speaking towards the corruption in the leadership, the corruption in the pastors, the corruption in the priests, the corruption in the government, all that, those kinds of things. In chapters 6 through 7, he's saying, <clears throat> hear your redemption. He's going to be speaking towards the corruption, not just of the leadership, but the corruption of the nation, but of the redemption that is to come. Micah goes back and forth many times between judgment and restoration. Like he'll, he'll talk about um, the judgment that is to come and then we'll jump right into like the millennial king and the millennial reign of Christ, the restoration of the kingdom where God will restore Israel. He jumps back and forth many times. And this guy is incredible in that he got to see into something that not many other prophets got to see. Um, one of the key verses in this book is who is, um, Micah 7, 18, it says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. Micah's name actually means who is like God or who is like you, God. So at the end of this, he asked the question of his own name. 
and the unique character of God. And he says, who is like him? As he's given all these different evidences, all of these things, and then pronounces God's restoration upon Israel. And he says, who can, who, what God is there in the world, in the universe that is like this? And the answer is, of course, no one. So verse one, we already read verse two. It says, hear all you peoples, listen to earth and all that is in it. Let the Lord God be witnessed against you, the Lord your, uh, from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place. He will come down and tread on the high places of the earth. The mountains will melt under him, and the valley will split like wax before the, before the fire. Like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of, of Jacob? It is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins in the field, places of, for planting a vineyard. I will pour down her stones into the valley. He begins with his case against the world. It's like a broad stroke that he paints with. Like, we're going to... We're going to narrow this down in a minute, but he's just, just the world in general, I have something to bring against you. There is judgment against the world. He begins with that broad pronouncement, but we'll narrow it down. In verses 3 through 6, Micah jumps to the future judgment at the wrath of the Lamb found in Revelation chapter 6 through 18 where the wrath of God is being poured out upon a Christ-rejecting world. He has a, a, a case against the world in that sense. So he jumps immediately from, from like present-day Israel to what will come in the end, in the end times. In verse 6, he talks about a place called Samaria. He says, Samaria is a heap. And this prophecy uh, of this place of Samaria, which was a, a bustling, if you could use the word bustling, um, I've been watching some westerns lately. Uh, a, a like a town, like a, a city, a well-working city is what the word bustling means. So <clears throat> this prophecy that their their foundations would be exposed, meaning that their whole the buildings would be removed from their foundations, one stone upon another, actually was fulfilled in 722 BC where the foundations were uncovered, meaning it was completely destroyed. And today, Samaria is now covered by olive trees and the valleys are filled with rocks, with the stones of the city that they tore apart as Assyria came in and broke it down piece by piece. So when, when the Lord says, I will make Samaria a heap of ruins, this took place and actually is fulfilled in 722 BC. He, but, but Micah doesn't stop there and just say, he pronounces judgment and then yawns and walks away. Look at the heart of this prophet. He says in verse eight, therefore I will wail and howl. I will go stripped and naked. I will make wailing like the jackals and the mourning like the ostriches. I don't know what that means, but apparently you can mourn like an ostrich for her wounds are incurable. For it has come to Judah and has come to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah doesn't just read this and pronounce judgment over Israel, yawn and walk away and be like, deal with it. Enjoy your destruction. It says that his heart breaks over it. He weeps with them. He cries with them. 
He, he, was, he says he stripped off his clothes, and not that we're encouraging anything like that. But he didn't just pronounce a judgment and then like just walk away. He deeply cared for the people. He deeply cared for them. Alan Redpath wrote in his book, Victorious Christian Service. It's a commentary on the book of Nehemiah. If you've never read it, you should. You can't because it's out of print. But it's on Kindle. If you've never read it, if you have a heart to serve God's people, if you have a heart to do anything for God in ministry, if you have a heart to just be a Christian and live on mission for Christ, you should read this book. And the Bible, of course. But Alan Redpath said this, may I suggest that before you attempt any service for God, you get alone with God on your knees and mourn over the human heart. Like Nehemiah who mourned over the city that was broken down, his countrymen that were living in trash heaps and his heart breaks and he cries over it. Much like Jesus who wept over the nation of Israel. Probably one of the, the Bible verses we remembered. Jesus wept. It's the whole verse, right? We memorize that one. Jesus wept over the people. Alan Redpath makes the point that this is what is needed for service unto God, a broken heart over the people of God. The ones that God loves, the one that God has a heart for. Much in contrast to Jonah, right? We went through Jonah last week, who was like, judgment's gonna come. He walks up on a hill and sits there and goes, judge them, burn them. Burn them with fire, God. Do it now. I'm ready. Let's <laughs> like a little creep, right? Much in contrast, Micah weeps and wails over them. His heart was broken for them. And that is what is needed of the servant of the Lord. If your heart doesn't break for it, then we, then we don't necessarily care about it. Um, it's amazing what, what people will cry over or, or their heart will break over. But when it comes to humanity, sometimes we're so cold to it. Remember those commercials that come on and it's like a Sarah McLaughlin song <laughs> in the arms of an angel and it shows those dogs looking into the camera and you're like, I'm adopting every dog. <laughs> I just want all the dogs and the cats. And your heart is just broken for these animals or, or whatever. But we, we read about what's happening in, in some of these these places with people who are being enslaved and, and stuff, and our hearts are cold towards it. It's amazing um, how, how we can shift so quickly. But the Lord, uh, in Micah's heart specifically, the Lord had given Micah such a heart for these people, and Micah portrayed that. He, he spoke as a representative of God to the people, and, and as Micah's heart broke, it was an example of God's heart breaking for Israel as well his call for them to come back. In chapter two, <coughs> it says, woe to those who devise iniquity and work out evil from their beds. Verse one, at morning light they practice it because it is the power of their hand. They covet fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress the men of his house, a man in his inheritance. Thus says the Lord, behold, against this family, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your neck nor shall you walk haughtily, for this is an evil time. In that day, one shall take up a proverb against you, a lament from a bitter lamentation, saying, we are utterly destroyed. He has changed the heritage of my people. How has he removed it from me to turn to turncoats who had divided our fields? Therefore, you will have no one to determine boundaries, no lot in the assembly of the Lord. 
they were coveting what was happening in the nation of Israel. They were coveting each other's land and going in and just taking it from them, either by violence, through murder, or, or through oppression. And, and so they were, through covetousness, led to physical attributes or physical things to go out and get those things. One of the things that rocked the Apostle Paul, who, who before he was Paul, was Saul of Tarsus, was this very law of God that says, thou shalt not covet, right? Thou shalt not covet. To covet is to, to desire something that someone else wants. Covetousness begins where? Inside. It begins in our heart. Covetousness then leads to an action, which is also sin, Right? to take it or to, to oppress someone to receive it or to manipulate or to connive to receive it. Like covetousness begins from a place of the heart and then goes out through the members. And this is what the apostle Paul says, I can't change my own heart. Like I can do all the outward signs and get all those things right. I can make myself look as good as possible on the outside, but I cannot change my own heart, right? We can't change our own heart. That is something that only God can do. And, and that's the case here. Uh, Micah is raising and showing people the standard of righteousness of God, not so that people can become righteous on their own, but that the law would reveal their need for God. It, it's what the law of God had been intended to do from the very beginning. The law was never intended so that men could reach God by keeping it. It was so that men in failing in it would see their need for God, would see their need for Yahweh and come back to God and to, re, and to come under his grace and his mercy. In Galatians chapter three, verse 21 through 26, the book of Galatians is all about how the gospel is by grace and grace alone. There is no other means by which we are saved. It's an incredible book. But here's what he says concerning the law. Is the law not contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. He says, is it opposite now? Are we not, do, do we not have to keep these rules and regulations? He, he's not saying that the law doesn't matter. What he's saying is that the law does exactly what it is intended to do. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came... We were held captive under the law, imprisoned under the coming of faith, would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under the guardian for in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. What Paul's saying is that the law was not contrary to God. In fact, it was complementary. It does exactly what God intended it to do. The law was never meant to fix us in that way. Like a thermometer. A thermometer tells you you have a fever. You don't swallow the thermometer with a glass of water and it makes you better, right? It indicates that you have a fever so that you can take some Tylenol or fever reducer. Yeah, that's what I meant. The law is the... Is the it's a thermometer. It tells you that there's something wrong. When the, when the law told Paul, thou shalt not covet, he says, well, how do I stop coveting? I can't. I can't stop. 
It's something in me that I, that I can't change on my own. So what does that do? It, it forces him to come under God's righteous hands and say, God, either you save me or, or I can't, because I, I can't save myself. I can't change my heart. I can't change who I am from the inside out. God, you have to do it. And so the writer of, of Galatians agrees with the law of God here as Micah says. The law does exactly what God intended it for, for it to do. And that is to reveal our need for a savior. That is what, what Micah and every other minor prophet does is bring these cases against Israel and says, you're in sin and you must repent, return to God, return to the covenant, repent of your sin and restoration will come, right? Those are the three cyclical themes we've said for the last five weeks. That's what these guys are preaching, return, repent and restoration will come. But it doesn't come by them keeping the law perfectly. It comes because the Messiah is promised in Jesus Christ. Because a baby will be born in Bethlehem. That's the restoration that he's speaking of. And so the, the law does exactly what is intended for it to do. And that is it reveals our need for God. Just as it did in the life of Saul and just as it's done in the life of every other person where it says thou shalt not steal. And you're like... Well, that's just like a suggestion, right? No, it's the law of God. Thou, thou, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Like that's not just like a, a suggestion of how to live a good life. These are God's standards of righteousness. And so the law does exactly what it's intended to do. Just like a speeding sign. Sorry, last, last illustration. A speeding sign does not keep you from speeding, does it? Not at all. Not at all. Warning signs do not keep us from keep, like, you know, you see a sign that says warning, no trespassing. You're like, yeah, right. You're so silly with your signs. Or a sign that says 65. How many of you are like, you know what? You're absolutely right. I was wrong. You're right. I'm going to slow down. Doesn't, never, never does it do that. Stop signs, most, for most of us, are suggestions of how we are to drive. Stop usually means for us, slow down, take a look, and we'll keep on going, right? We've defined it here in California as a California roll. <laughs> in which I have gotten a ticket just a few weeks ago for not stopping at a stop sign. And that is a fat, fat ticket that they don't give grace on. So stop at those stop signs. But the stop sign doesn't keep you from stopping, does it? Speeding, speed limit signs don't keep you from speeding. When the cop pulls you over and says, didn't you see the sign? And you're like, yeah, but I didn't do it. Is the sign wrong? No. Who's wrong? We are. We broke the law. The law is not wrong. The, long, the law is fine. It does exactly what it's intended to do. It tells people how, how to keep it, how to drive. We break it. The same with the law of God. God's law is perfect. It's fine the way it is. But it doesn't fix the problem of sin. It only reveals the problem of sin. And so Micah brings these cases against the people and he says, look, you know the law and you're breaking it. You need to come back to righteousness. And he talks about the prophets and them prophesying lies and things like that. But in verse 12 of chapter two, it says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will surely gather the remnant of Israel. I will put them, under, like, put them together like sheep of the fold, like a flock in the midst of pasture. They shall make a loud noise because of so many people. 
The one who breaks open will come up before them and they will break out, pass through the gate and go out by it. Their king will pass before them with the Lord at their head. He prophesies now of the future restoration under their shepherd. Now the imagery of, the, of God being the shepherd of Israel is seen throughout scripture. Um, it, it's seen from beginning to end. As David said in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, he said, whose rod and staff brings me great comfort, meaning his discipline and his guidance brings me comfort that I'm one of his own. He is the one who I follow, therefore, he says, I will lack nothing, right? That the imagery continues. But Jesus said in John's gospel, after reading those verses, okay, which is a pretty cool verse, talking about God gathering Israel back to himself, through their destruction, through their, God's rod and staff after them, God would restore them and bring them back. I want you to think of John chapter 10, verses one through four. Jesus said in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the sheepfold, by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. Jesus, when he comes on the scene, I believe, continues this imagery, and he says, I am, remember in John 10, he says, I am the shepherd. I'm the great shepherd. In connection with who God is as the shepherd of Israel, Jesus himself says, that, that's me. And I'm gathering unto myself a flock. And those that know me by name. But notice he doesn't keep them in this pen, right? He's not like, okay, I got everybody together. Like, we're good. Everyone just hide here and hold on tight. And I'm going to beam us up. He doesn't do that. What does he do? He leads them out of the sheepfold to another herd that was not of them, if you read the rest of that chapter. Speaking of Jesus opening the door for Judaism to come out of, from under the law, leading the Jews out to another herd. Who is the other herd? Gentiles. And combining them into one family and Jesus leading in this new way. The one where it says that he breaks open, the one who breaks open will come up before them. The, the translation there is the one who is the breaker. Like it's this, this title of Jesus, the one who breaks forth into this new way and opens up a new door for us to relate and to experience God. Now in chapter three, it brings the judgment upon the leaders. Look at verse five. It says, thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who make my people stray, who chant peace while they chew with their teeth, but who prepare war against him, who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, you shall have night without vision and you shall have darkness without divination. The, the sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be dark for them. So the seers shall be ashamed and the diviners abashed Indeed, they shall all cover their lips. There is no answer from God. When he says in verse 5 that the prophets who make my people go astray, this is a big deal. When, God, when someone would call themselves a prophet or a representative of God, that was a big deal. If you were to misrepresent God, oftentimes in those days you were put to death. Like that was the penalty. 
If, if you prophesied, thus saith the Lord, and it didn't happen, you're dead meat. Like, you're a false prophet. Simple as that. So when, when this indictment comes of the corruption in the nation, and he says to him, even the prophets are leading my people astray, God takes it so seriously. That's why anyone who opens scripture and says, this is what God says, and this is what God means, God takes it seriously. And we should take it seriously. The word of God in the Bible, being a Christian is not just another way to like live a good kind of life. It's not a suggestion for us on like, here's a way of living. Jesus said it is the way. Like this is the way in which we live our life in order to, to experience who God is. This is how, how we're to live. We're to live in righteousness and holiness. This is what God is calling us to. Not in our own strength, but he says through the death of Jesus Christ upon the cross, you're given new life in his Holy Spirit who is poured out because of the blood of Jesus. God cares more. There's later a, another passage that, that um, Micah says, you rather go and hear one of the pastors teach on booze than hear the word of the Lord. You rather hear a guy talk about the Merlot he's drinking than to hear the word of God being taught. Listen, God cares more about your holiness than he has ever cared about your happiness. Every Disney movie that's ever told you, God, you just want to be happy. Who cares if you're happy and going to hell? Like, who cares? Like, that's not the, the aim of life is not just to be happy. I know it's in the motto of our country, the pursuit of happiness. Yeah, but that's not the end of life is to be happy. The goal of the Christian is to live in holiness. Is, is to live in holiness. That's what God has called us to. In verse 7 of, of chapter 3, it says, um, So the, the seers and the ashamed and the diviners abashed, indeed they shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. So from Malachi, which is the last of the minor prophets, to the coming on the scene of John the Baptist, it's 400 years of complete silence from heaven. There's no prophesying. There's no word from God, which would be fulfilled. No divine revelation from the Lord because of their sin. But in verse 8, we have one of the key verses. He says, but truly I am full of power by the spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now, the spirit of God upon individuals in the Old Testament was, a, a, was few and far. Like it was sparse. But it's a picture of what was to come in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, where the Holy Spirit would be poured out upon all flesh. Men, women, slave, king, all could be filled and experience the Holy Spirit in their own life. When he says, I am full of the Holy Spirit, that was unique to him. Not a whole lot of people got to experience that. And so um, chapter 4, however, turns the corner. We've been talking an awful lot about judgment. God bless you. Welcome to church. I'm so glad you came tonight. I'm sure that's why you're all coming, is to hear how God will melt the mountains like wax at some point. But here's where it turns the corner. Chapter 4, it says, Now it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow to it. Many nations shall come and say, Come, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways, and we shall walk in his paths. For out of Zion the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. 
In chapter four, where it talks about the mountains of the Lord's house shall be exalted above the hills, it speaks of the ultimate exaltation of Jerusalem, the city of Zion and the Lord's ultimate restoration. This is to be fulfilled completely in the millennium with Christ when the people shall flow and restored and redeemed Jerusalem as the capital of the millennial earth out of Zion, the law shall go forth, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, it says. Micah 4, 1 through 3 is repeated in Isaiah chapter 2, 1 through 3. Since Isaiah and Micah were contemporary prophets, it's not surprising. The same spirit of the Lord could give them to these two prophets the same word to establish and emphasize God's word. These two guys have the same prophecy and they say the same thing. And the glorious transformation of the mountain of the Lord is especially wonderful. This is especially wonderful in light of what the sinning people of God did to it. Therefore, he says, because of you, Zion shall be plowed like a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountains of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. In, in light of what they were using this holy place for, and God says, I'm going to restore it. It's going to be laid waste, but I will bring it back to life. This is something that God has said from his word forever. That he is a God who can not only give, but he takes away. Not only can he, he take away uh, uh, things that we, we are experiencing, but he can give us new life in him. Guys, God is a God of restoration. And what we give him is not anything of, of great value other than the fact that it's your soul. It's, not, it's, it's the most valuable thing that we possess. And God says, that's all I want from you. That's all I want from you is your heart, is your love. Some say that, that like worship in the Old Testament was all about the outwards and like these outward demonstrations. God is after the heart. He's always been. God has always been after the heart of humanity. Because God will not share his throne with anyone and he sets his throne upon our hearts. That's why in Hosea, he says, you committed adultery. You have someone else in your bed with you, some other God with you that you're worshiping. In Amos, he tells them, like, destruction will come because of the idols that you're worshiping. He says, if you will turn, God will restore. During the reign of the Messiah, there will be no more war. If you, if you go on in chapter 4, it says, He shall judge between many people and rebuke strong nations afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Now, this is different in Amos. Remember, they were going to beat their plowshares into swords. They were going to go from work to war. But here, in the millennial reign of Christ, you see people going from war to work. No longer is there war being taught. Look what it says later on. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall there learn war anymore. Like, they're not even going to teach war in school anymore. Under the rule and reign of Christ in the new Jerusalem, in this new place that God creates, he will rule with justice. This is incredible, incredible insight into the coming millennial reign of Christ, into Jesus returning to the earth. When it says nations shall no longer lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn of war anymore, it is important to see that there is not a piece of capitalization. This is a piece of enforced righteousness. There will be no more war and no more need for swords, so it makes sense for them to make plowshares, to, to go from war to work, because Jesus is the new ruler on the earth. 
This year alone, actually in 2020, the world military spending to, <laughs> in all the world, how much they spent on military alone in fighting in war was almost $2 trillion in 2020. That's how much spending went into amassing weapons and fighting. Now imagine if $2 trillion tomorrow, say tomorrow, they're like, you know what? We're gonna take that $2 trillion, and we're gonna put it towards agriculture. There's no more starvation in Ethiopia. There's no more world hunger at that point. $2 trillion dedicated towards that one thing. Right now it's spent towards war and killing each other. Under the rule of Jesus Christ, war wouldn't even be taught in schools anymore. The art of war, or how to war, or how to fight, like doesn't exist because Christ will rule. Imagine what, what that will be like. Now, read the whole chapter, it's super good. Chapter five, it says, now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, verse two. But you, Bethlehem, Epaphrathalah, Though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one to be ruler of Israel, whose goings forth are from old and everlasting. Now, this verse alone, we could spend the next few weeks talking about, but we're not going to do that. But notice what it said. Micah prophesied the birthplace of the Messiah, Bethlehem. Now, Bethlehem was well known as the hometown of David. Israel's greatest king, yet it was never a great influential city, right? It was, it was truly little among the thousands of Israel, yet God chose it as the birthplace of the Messiah, <clears throat> the ruler in Israel. And this passage in Micah 5 was quoted by the chief priests and teachers of the law when Herod asked about the birth of the Messiah, like, where will the Messiah be born? So I can go and kill him, right? That's what Herod wanted to do. And this is the verse that they quoted. We know that he will be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem means, who knows what it means? Say it loud and proud. Yeah, that's good job, two of you. House of bread means house of bread, house of sourdough bread. No, it just means house of bread. And Jesus is the bread of life. John chapter six, verse 35. And now for that word, I can't even say it. That was the old name of the place which Jews retained in love. The meaning of it means fruitfulness or abundance, right? Out of this place of fruitfulness and abundance would come the bread of life. Remember when Jesus is there on the shore and there's 5,000 people and they're hungry. What does Jesus do? He multiplies bread and fish in great abundance. They pick up 12 baskets, the bread of life who came from a place of fruitfulness and abundance provides abundantly above what anyone could ask or think there at the seashore. I mean, you could, could you imagine? This is a man from Bethlehem, the house of bread, the bread of life. He says, I am the bread of life. Micah has this incredible insight into the Messiah that was to come. Now, Bethlehem may have been the place that he was born, but this is not the place that he began. Notice what he makes the point here. Yet out of you shall come forth to me, the one of the ruler of Israel. Notice all those are capitalized. One ruler, Israel, speaking of God. Whose going forth are from old and from everlasting. So 
Although it is where Jesus began or where he was born physically, <laughs> Micah says this is not where he will begin ultimately. Where he began is in eternity past. John's gospel, John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the word, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He was everlasting. Micah makes that indication that the Messiah would come and he would come from this little town, this little blip on the screen, and from him, a ruler over all Israel. <coughs> now, there's a lot more. Chapter six, however, now he begins to, um, it's like a trial or a courtroom. In verses three through five, he says, oh, my people, what have I done to you? And how have I wor uh, worried you? Testify against me. For I brought you up out of Egypt. I redeemed you from the house of bondage. I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. Oh, my people, remember now what Balak, king of Moab, counseled, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him. From the Acacia Grove to Gilgal, that you may know the Lord, or the righteousness of the Lord. It's basically, he says, testify against me. As Israel stepped in the witness stand, God asked them, what have I done to you? Like, in what way have I, have I wronged you? He had done nothing but good to Israel. And had, he had been repaid with rejection and rebellion. He says, I redeemed you out of the house of bondage. Not only did God not do evil to Israel, he also did them an enormous amount of good. He redeemed them and gave them godly leaders. God, God's case against Israel was strong, and Israel was guilty in the prophet's court. Like, he says, testify against me. What is it? Was it because I freed you from slavery? Was it because of the leaders I gave you who were godly and who led you in holiness and righteousness? What is it? And he's, he brings up these two names, Balak and Balaam. In Numbers chapter 22 and 24, tell us the story. It's of Balak and Balaam. After meeting with King Balak of Moab, Balaam prophesied over Israel four times. He was paid to curse them. And as he spoke forth God's word, he did not curse Israel, but he blessed them each time. When he was unsuccessful in cursing Israel, Balaam answered Balak on how to bring Israel under the curse of God. He said, instead of trying to have a prophet curse them, because God's not going to let that happen, the Moabites would lead them into fornication and idolatry, and thus God would curse idolatrous and disobedient Israel. He says, I'm not going to be able to pronounce that upon them, God's not going to let me. But here's what you need to do. You, you see the Moabite women? Take them into the camp. They will, they will lead the men astray. It will turn the hearts of the people to begin to worship idols. And that's exactly what happened. It's exactly what happened. He says, remember that. Remember how your heart was turned because of sin. Repent. Come back. In light of this, Israel must remember that God can never be persuaded to curse Israel. God loved them, except if they brought curses on themselves. Sometimes people are like, man, I can't, God, why would God allow this? And why would God, blah, 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 why would God? Hey, sometimes you brought this upon yourself. It's hard to hear, it, it stinks to hear, right? It's not fun, you're like, I'm going through a tough time. Why? Because I was an idiot. Like, I did this to myself. So often, that's what's happened. The, the devil's lied to you. You believed it. And what happened? Here you are. 
Like that's, that's often what it is. You believed a lie of the devil. You believed something else, some, some voice that was telling you that this is what you need. He promises you the world and then pulls the rug out from under you and you're like left with the consequences of it. God said, I, I had nothing but good for you. I have nothing but good for you. I love you. I care for you. Remember. He says, let this be something that we remember. What turned the hearts of the people were their sin and what was brought upon them were the results of their sin, which is always, like we've said week after week, the the result of sin is always death. Something dies. Now, in verse six, the people answer. And they say, with what shall I come before you, O Lord, and bow myself before the, before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offering, with calves a year old? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I give you my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? They say to him, well, what shall I come to you with before you? This is the question asked out of the bitterness and resentment in Micah's imagined courtroom. Israel called out to God from, from the witness stand and said, just what do, you want me to, what do you want from me? Like, what do you want me to give you? He says, we can almost hear Israel shouting at God from the witness stand saying, you ask too much, God. You ask too much from me. Nothing will satisfy you. Even if I, I brought rivers of oil, if I brought rams every day, if I gave you my own children as a sacrifice to you, that would not please you. He's, he's saying, Micah's saying, you're saying that God is unreasonable. That's what you're claiming. God, you ask too much. God, you're unreasonable. Nothing ever satisfies you. They were blinded to God's goodness and character. And look at what God's reply is in verse 8. He says, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? One of the, the cross references to this is Deuteronomy chapter 10, verse 12, which actually mirrors these exact words. It says, What does God require of you? It's exactly what he said back in back what he's always said. God's not changing his mind. God hasn't gone back on his word, but they were blinded to God's goodness. God has shown you what to do, he says. To do justly. What does that mean to do justly? He says, act in a just way, in a fair way towards others. Treat them as you would want to be treated. To love mercy. He says, don't just show mercy, but love to show it. Love to show it. Give others the same measure of mercy that you want to receive yourself And then he says, walk humbly with your God. Remember who God is. And if you keep that in mind, you will walk humbly before me. Spurgeon, he says, I would not advise any of you to try to be humble, to try to be humble, but to be humble. As as to acting humbly when a man forces himself to it, that is poor stuff. When a man talks a great deal about his humility, when he is very humble... To everybody, he is generally a canting hypocrite. Humility must be in the heart, and then it will come out spontaneously as the outflow of life in every act that a man performs. He said later on, walk humbly when you're spiritually strong. Walk humbly when you have much work to do. Walk humbly in your own motives. Walk humbly studying God's word. Walk humbly when you're under trials. Walk humbly in your devotions. Walk humbly between you and your brothers in Christ and walk humbly when dealing with sinners. True humility is thinking rightly of thyself, not meaningly. 
When you have found out what you really are, you will be humble, for you are nothing to boast of. To be humble will make music in your heart when you go to bed. To be humble here will make you wake up in the likeness of your master by and by. Micah says, God has shown you in his grace and in his mercy. This is what God has asked you to do. And he goes on to say that they, would, they, would, they just didn't turn. They didn't listen. They, they built their house on the shore, as Billy said tonight. They just wouldn't listen. They, they became the fool. But notice what chapter 7, verse 18 says. This is where we'll end tonight. It says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and he will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea and you will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Micah just simply throws up his hands and he says, who is like our God? And he begins to list some of the attributes of our God. He says, "He's look, he pardons iniquity. He does not retain his anger forever. He doesn't hold a grudge against you. He delights in pardoning you of your sin. And he will again, notice that, he will again have compassion. What he has shown you in the past, he will again show you compassion again. And he will subdue our iniquities. Why, what would bring about this kind of prophetic word from Micah? What is he looking towards? He's looking towards the baby that would be born in Bethlehem that 33 years later would die upon a cross, shedding his own blood for our sins, experience the wrath of God poured out upon him, would be buried, and in three days rise again from the grave, conquering both sin and death. And he says, this is the restoration that we long for. That God will pardon our iniquities, not because God just passes over them and he's like, we'll just sweep this under the rug, but because it was dealt with on the cross of Jesus Christ. So, God is compassionate tonight. God is merciful as he has always been. He has always been compassionate and mercy. There is human responsibility there is human responsibility of returning and repenting. And God will bring restoration in your life. He will. That is the promise. Like it comes because of the goodness of God and the compassion of the Lord. Because God has good in store for you. God wants your good. God, God wants your holiness. God wants you to enjoy your life. God wants you to have joy in that abundantly. Like this, these are the things that he wants for us. And it's found in Christ. It's because of Christ. And so if you don't know Jesus, this is not accessible outside of Christ. You can't gain this kind of like pardoning of sin and the compassion of God in your own effort to make yourself lovable before God. It doesn't happen. It's only found in confessing Christ as Savior and Lord. And it's immediate. It's not some like thing that happens over time where God forgets how horrible you were. And he's like, you know what? Now that time has passed... We, we're cool. It's instant. Redemption can be instant. Renewal can be instant. 
And it depends on whether or not you will turn. Like, that's it. God's already done everything that there needs to be done. He asks you and pleads with you, would you turn back to me? What a gracious God. What a gracious and wonderful God. That's why Micah says, who is like our God? Who's like, who, forget God's. He says, who is like this at all? Like ever, anywhere. No one. There's no one like this. No one's this compassionate. No one is this long-suffering except our God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, God, for your compassion towards us, your mercy for us, Lord. But God, like Paul said in the book of Romans, let us not take that for granted. Lord, that you've been gracious and merciful to us. And Lord, we want to be those that respond instantly to it. Man, we don't want to wait. We want to respond, Lord, to your grace and your compassion. We don't want to make a mockery of it. And so, Lord, um, if, there's, or if there's anyone in this room tonight that is just in need of a touch from you and, and a reassurance of your love and your compassion for them, and, Lord, that you have mercy and grace sufficient for them, God, I pray by your spirit that you would do that tonight. Remind them of, of how much you love them, how much you care for them. And so, Lord, would you continue to work in us these things? Um, just these different themes that, that are brought up tonight, Lord, would you continue to work them out in our own heart, cleanse us of, of our own sin, bring those things to mind that we might confess them to you and be right with you and forgiven of them. We thank you for the, the cross of Christ that cleanses us from all unrighteousness, Lord, that, that has provided a way of salvation for us to be right with you.